Be seated. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Got to confess something to you this morning right from the jump. Uh, This is my fourth Advent season preaching to y'all. And I've discovered that these are actually the most difficult sermons to write all year. Now, on one hand, you may think that sounds absurd. It can't be that hard because you already know what you're going to talk about. Baby Jesus in the manger, shepherds in the field, you just share the Christmas story. Come on, man, it's not that hard. But you see, that's where the difficulty lies. How do you tell the same story every year? How do you keep this story, which is a really big deal, from becoming just another good story? Especially if you grew up in church like me and you've heard it hundreds of times. After a while, we might even start to wonder, what's the point? What does this old story have to do with my life today? The the Christmas holiday is great. The lights, the the music, the movies, the traditions. And of course, we, we pay lip service saying, yeah, yeah, Jesus is the reason for the season. But do we really believe it? Or is it just another Christmas tradition? Does the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago really make a difference to the way we live today? Like if Jesus had not really been born, but we still celebrated all the holiday stuff, would anything about this time of year for you change? Because there's a whole lot of people doing a lot of the things, same things we do, but who have no relationship with Christ at all. Here's the question I'm wrestling with this morning. Could it be that the more we make Christmas the most wonderful time of the year, the further away we get from the actual message of Christmas? Especially for those who are in a difficult season of life. Those of us going through a health crisis, the first holiday season without a loved one, a job loss, a broken relationship. We have these aches and pains living in a broken world. And what we do is we just kind of gloss over it all with Christmas fluff. We try to cover it up or pretend it doesn't exist or medicate it away. And we end up totally missing the whole point of Jesus coming and the way he did and the time he did to the people he did who also lived in a broken world. So listen to me this morning. If you're going through something difficult right now, if you feel depressed, anxious, afraid, lonely, lost, if you aren't even sure you want to celebrate Christmas this year, maybe you don't even want to put the tree up. If that's you, I want you to know this story, the real story about Christmas, the real story of the birth of Jesus is for you. In fact, we're about to see it's especially for you. Now, don't get me wrong. I will celebrate Christmas with the best of them. All right, okay, I'll watch all the Home Alone movies and drink a lot of hot chocolate, eat too many Christmas cookies. I will drive around and look at lights while listening to NSYNC's Christmas album, which is the best. Some of you 90s kids get that. There's nothing wrong, okay? I'm not trying to be a Scrooge. There's nothing wrong with the joy and excitement and fun of Christmas. But here's the point I'm trying to make. 
those things make Christmas fun, but they aren't what makes Christmas life-changing. They don't speak to the real problems we're dealing with in the world, and they give the unfortunate illusion that Jesus doesn't either. That he doesn't have anything to do with the real hard stuff of life. But that couldn't be more untrue. So let's look at the familiar Christmas story again, because we need to look at it again and again. But let's do our best to see it with fresh eyes and to consider how it might actually impact our lives today. So look with me at Luke chapter 2. Let's start in verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. It is astounding, and honestly a little bit frustrating, at how little Luke tells us about the birth of Jesus. And I'm like, Luke, can you give us just a little bit more here, man? Like, we know this is God's word, I know this is, this is what he, he chose to give us. But, but I think the lack of detail we're given, it actually plays into the humility of the story. Uh, the birth of Jesus, the most important person to ever live, God in human flesh, the Savior of the world, he had an extraordinarily humble beginning. And that's one of the key things Luke wants us to see. Chapter 2 opens with an explanation of how a couple that lived in Nazareth had their baby in Bethlehem. For those versed in the Old Testament, they would have had that thought in Luke chapter 1. They would have been thinking about the prophecy in the book of Micah, the best book in the Bible. Uh, Micah chapter 5, verse... It wasn't meant to be funny. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but book of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says this. But you, O Bethlehem of Paphrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. It was prophesied a long time ago that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, but up until chapter 2, the story's taking place in Galilee. That's where his parents were. So how would Mary and Joseph end up in Bethlehem to fulfill this big prophecy? Well, that's what Luke explains. He says it was because of a Roman census. Though the Jewish people had the freedom to practice their Jewish religion in Israel, they were still under Roman rule. And this decree for a census came from the top, from Caesar himself. It required everyone to go back to their ancestral homeland so they could be accounted for. And let's just consider the burden that would have placed on people like Mary and Joseph. From Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem, if they bypassed Samaria, was a 90-mile journey. Think about that for a moment. No cars, planes, or trains. It was either foot or donkey. Maybe some sort of a cart to ride in for 90 bumpy miles. That was a major undertaking requiring lots of food and resources, leaving your home for a considerable amount of time, and not to mention a very pregnant Mary along for the ride. 
This was also not a very good reason that people would have wanted to travel for. Everyone knew the reason Rome wanted a census. It was for tax purposes. They wanted more of their money. And for a place like Bethlehem, which was not a wealthy city, this would have produced a lot of anger and frustration at the man. So here come Mary and Joseph, going back to Joseph's hometown, 90 miles of travel while pregnant, frustrated, tired, showing up at a time when no one is excited to be back home. And they get there, and there is no place for them to stay. If you have the ESV translation of the Bible, it says there was no place for them in the inn. And we imagine in our heads a hotel or some kind of a bed and breakfast that had no vacancy, and there's the mean old innkeeper who won't help them out, but he just kind of slams the door in their faces. Well, it's not exactly what Luke tells us or how it would have happened in this time. There's a footnote in my Bible for that word in. It tells us that the word can also be translated guest room. And that helps us get a better idea of the scene. In the first century, when you traveled, there were sometimes public shelters available for travelers or guests, a big room where you could stay the night. But if you were going to a place where you had family, as Joseph was, it was more likely you'd try to stay with someone you knew. But for whatever reason, we don't know, there was no room for Joseph and Mary. The census had caused people everywhere to travel, so the limited lodging in a small town was already taken. So where do they stay? Well, the only other clue we get about the place where Jesus was born is the word manger. That word described a feeding trough for animals. So wherever Mary and Joseph were forced to stay, it was somewhere where animals were kept nearby. In this time, some homes were two stories where the people would stay on the second floor and their animals would be on the first floor. Some homes had a stable attached to the home or were close enough to a cave where they could keep their livestock there. That's likely the kind of place where Joseph and Mary ended up staying. And that's when it came time for Jesus to be born. Mary wrapped her newborn in swaddling cloths, much like we do today. And she was left with no other option but to lay her baby in a feeding trough. Of all the emotions we can imagine Mary and Joseph must have felt in this moment, I think the one emotion we can say for certain that they felt was fear. They had to be afraid. They were young, not even officially married yet, and brand new parents. They were far from home. There was no room for them to stay. They didn't have much to their name, and Caesar wanted to tax them even more. They both had received these ridiculous promises from an angel that they were going to be the parents of the Messiah, and here they were staring at each other thinking, this is not the way we plan things out. What would you have felt in that moment? These are regular people like you. These weren't superheroes. These weren't fairy tale characters. And this wasn't the picture-perfect, peaceful family from your mantle's nativity scene. And yet, it's in this moment we see a word of hope from God. And I want to share that same word of hope with you for our first point this morning. Number one. Number one. Do not be afraid, for you are not forsaken. Again, we don't have much detail about how this all went down. We we don't know how Mary and Joseph made it through this ordeal. 
We don't know for sure what they felt, thought, or said. But the details Luke does give us confirm God was with them and he was working in their midst. We see that first with the census itself. Is God sovereign over world leaders? Is he sovereign over pagan world leaders, even with evil motives? Well, Proverbs 21.1 tells us that he is. It says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God used Caesar Augustus in Caesar's plan to shake down the Jewish people to get his Messiah from Nazareth to Bethlehem. He was working in the details to get his people in the right place, just as he prophesied. We also see God's working in the town of Bethlehem itself. The prophecy we read from the prophet Micah tells us what people thought of Bethlehem. It was small, insignificant, backwoods. It wasn't a place you'd go for vacation. It wasn't a place of power or prestige. And yet it was the place God chose for his son Jesus to be born. Why? Is it random and coincidence? Is it just made for a cool story? Well, no, Bethlehem fits the entire theme of Jesus' ministry. It points to the fact that Jesus came for the outcast, the forgotten, the written off, and the insignificant. God chose to take the town that no one thought of and make it the town that no one would forget. Jesus did that exact thing throughout his ministry, his entire life gravitating to the forgotten and the discarded of society healing the sick, eating with prostitutes, visiting the Samaritans, and greatest of all, dying on a cross for sinners like you and me. Despite what Mary and Joseph felt, and really the entire nation of Israel at this time, God was telling them through the details, do not be afraid, for you are not forsaken. I haven't given up on my plan to save you. You are not alone, but I'm there and I'm working. And God is saying the same thing to you in this Christmas season. Especially to you who feel forsaken right now. One of the best things you can do during this Christmas season is to go visit a hospital or a nursing home. Or go to our ministry, Cooking with the King, here at the Juvenile Detention Center. Or go to the City Union Mission downtown. It's a good way to be reminded that there are people this time of year who feel forsaken. There are people who have nothing to give or to receive and no one to be with this time of year. And then there's us here in Johnson County. It's easy to look around here and think, we've, we've got it all made. Lots of food and fun and family and friends. We think, man, everybody here is so happy and fulfilled. But we know that's not true. There are people on your street who are surrounded by stuff and yet emptier than ever. Maybe even that's you in this room. You're wondering today if God has forsaken you or if you're being punished for something in your past. You're thinking, is, is God actually working for good in my life does he really love me and care about me is there really hope for me the birth of Jesus is proof that God cares about those who feel this way and it's evidence that he's working on your behalf he's working through the details of your life and it won't always make sense in the moment but he's calling you to trust him and to hear his call do not be afraid for you are not forsaken 
Let's look at what happens next after the birth of Christ. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Right after Luke records the birth of Jesus and he says there was no room for them in the end, he takes us out to another group of people in the same region. Another group that had nowhere to go that night. They were out and away from everyone else. And I think there's meant to be a connection there. If you've ever heard someone explain the shepherds in the Christmas story, you've probably heard that they were a very unlikely group to receive a birth announcement, especially the birth announcement of a king. In the Old Testament, shepherds had a good reputation. Moses and David were both shepherds at one point. But by the time we get to the first century, we know that the reputation of shepherds had shifted. We know this from Jewish rabbinic writings where shepherds were characterized as dishonest. They were known for letting their flocks graze on other people's land or stealing animals from their owners. It got to the point where a shepherd was not legally allowed to be a witness in court. They simply couldn't be trusted. Consider also the, the mundane jobs these guys had. You guys remember the, the show that used to be on TV with Mike Rowe called Dirty Jobs? Remember that? The shepherds of the first century would have been on that show. All right, they spent all of their time outside, in the field, in the dirt, with the animals, away from people. They were by all measures outcast and forgotten members of society. So you combine the possible corruption and the certain dirtiness, and you've got, again, the most unlikely group of people to receive an angelic announcement about the Messiah. And yet, while doing their jobs out in the night, the glory of the Lord shone around them. Can you just imagine that scene? Perfectly quiet, completely dark, and boom! Here's an angel with the glory of the Lord. The term glory is the same word used to describe God's presence in the temple. It was reserved for the sacred holy of holies where God's greatness could be safely displayed. And now suddenly it's been transported to the middle of a field at night. And the shepherds are terrified. The message of the angel has been made famous thanks to Charlie Brown. But notice a few things in this familiar message. First, he says, fear not. That's the third fear not we've seen from an angel in Luke's birth account. Then he says that he brings good news of great joy to all people. The message about Jesus coming is a message of good news. It's a message of not just joy, but great joy. And it's not limited to the special or the elite, but it's for all the people. And what is the good news? It's that a baby has been born who is Savior, Christ, and Lord. 
This is the only place in the entire New Testament where all three of those terms are put together. Jesus is Savior. That word means to deliver from something bad. Jesus is Christ. That's the word for Messiah, the future son of David, who would rule over the nation of Israel. And Jesus is Lord. That's a word for God, speaking of his rule over all the earth. Put all three together, and what do we have? Well, first you have a perfect three-point sermon. That's what I thought of first. But really what you have is the hope of the world. God himself coming to the earth and being born as a person. Jesus is him. He's God in flesh. He's the one foretold and promised for centuries, and he's here. And of course, this leads to an angelic concert. A heavenly host shows up praising God, bringing the sounds of heaven to the earth. Shepherds understood they were to go see this child. What were they to look for? Baby with a crown for his head, lying in a golden bassinet. Huge crowd of people with trumpets and flags waving. A, a mighty palace with decadent halls built for a king. No, he says a baby lying in a manger. You know, the same one you guys use to pour slop in for your animals. I wonder what their reaction was in that moment. They consider what they just heard and saw. God, the Savior of the world, he, he's in Bethlehem, he's here. And here's how you'll recognize him. He'll be lying in a feeding trough. Because his young parents had nowhere else to stay. I wonder if they thought in that moment, he's like us. He's like us. Because that's the big reason the message came to the shepherds. It was to communicate this word of hope. Here's our second point. Number two, do not be afraid for you are not forgotten. I want you to imagine with me. Imagine for a moment that you are an angel. I know some of you really are your precious angels. But just imagine you're a real angel, okay? And you're going to get to be in the heavenly angelic choir you've waited your whole life to use your beautiful little angel voice you auditioned you got the part you learned the song you're ready to go and you can't wait one day you find out that your choir gets to be the group of angels who announce the birth of jesus this moment is going to be recorded in the bible this is the biggest moment in the history of angelic choirs it's going to look amazing on your angel resume so you're waiting, you're waiting for the moment, you're, you're lined up, you're ready to go. And God says, all right, it's time. The son has been born to a virgin, just as foretold. It's time for the big announcement. And everybody's excited. Yeah, where are we going to go? Where are we going? Who's going to hear our song of praise that we've been working on all these years? And how big is the audience going to be? When is our, where is our award-winning heavenly choir going to perform our biggest song yet? And God points to a field outside of Bethlehem and he says, right there. Hang on, what, where? I'm not really seeing anything. Right there, that field. A field? I just, there's, nobody, there's nobody out there. There's a couple of shepherds. That, that's where we're going to perform? Uh-huh. Those shepherds, that, that's our audience? Yep. A group of shepherds in this field, they're going to be the ones to hear this huge announcement, this beautiful song. Yes. 
that's who I want to hear the good news first. Now, that's a really fanciful example I just made up. But my point is for you to see how unexpected this would have been. God sent the good news of great joy to a lowly group of forgotten people. Those without privilege or prestige received the honor of being the first to know of Christ's coming. God says to them, do not be afraid for you are not forgotten. And he says the same thing to us. It's easy to feel that God sometimes is distant. That he's working in everyone else's life except yours. Maybe you feel like you've been left out, passed over, ignored. Especially when your prayers have been unanswered and the suffering has not been taken away. Guys, if that's you, don't miss this message. The angel tells the shepherds, verse 11, he says, For unto you is born this day. That phrase, unto you, it's a, it's a holdover translation from the King James Version, but it simply means for you. You see the significance of that? Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord, he says, this day has been born for you. And in the case of the shepherds, for you too. Not just for the religious people, the people who have it all together, the popular people, the wealthy people, the special people. No, it's for you too. The forgotten, the alone, the left out, the outcast. So do not be afraid, for you are not forgotten. Here's the last section. It tells us how the shepherds responded, verses 15 to 21. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Shepherds did the one thing shepherds weren't supposed to do. They left their flocks. We can assume that was true because it says they went in haste, quickly. They left everything behind to see what the angel had said. And they found it just as he promised, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus in a manger. And I have a, a really funny scene in my head of when they meet each other. You know, Joseph's like, who are these really weird smelly guys showing up to see my baby and they're like okay we don't really know these people how do we explain the whole angel thing oh you guys get it you've seen one too it's a whole scenario this was a meeting between two groups of people who had no place to belong on this night and yet God had brought them together to the same place in the same time the holiest place the holiest time to see God himself so what did they do next? Well, they went out and told people. <laughs> who? We don't know. I'm guessing, though, anyone who would listen. Which, again, because they were shepherds, may not have been a lot of people. But they shared the good news anyway, and they went home praising God for getting to be a part of this story. So not only were the shepherds the first to receive the good news, they were also the first to give the good news. 
And they go down in history as having been used by God in an unexpected way. Here's the word of hope we can take away from their going and telling our third and last point, number three. Do not be afraid, for he is not finished. The big takeaway of the shepherds being the ones to announce the good news couldn't be more clear. If God could use them, he can use anyone. Think about it. No one was expecting the shepherds to play this role in the story, including the shepherds themselves. They weren't sitting around this night thinking how God might use them to bring his kingdom on earth. And for whatever reason, we aren't either. A lot of times we may not say it out loud, but we believe it subconsciously. God can never use someone like me, not someone with my past. When God lines his people up for the heavenly kickball game, I'm going to be the last pick. The people God uses are the really spiritual people who never cuss, who get all their Awana badges as a kid, and who never yell at their kids in the car. <laughs> but here's the deal. When we discount what God can do through us, we aren't insulting ourselves, we're insulting God. We aren't being humble, we're actually being prideful. Because you're claiming to know more than God. You're telling God what he can and can't do. The shepherds teach us that God can use anyone. He delights in using those who are forgotten and looked over and left out. And the only thing he asks is this. He simply asks you to be willing to go. The shepherds were willing to be used. They were obedient and they gave up everything. And that's what God is calling us to do as well. He's calling you to forsake all and follow him. The question is, will you go where God calls you? Are you willing to consider how he might use you this Advent week? What he might be calling you to do the week before Christmas? Who he might be sending you to? Jesus came for the forgotten, the forsaken, the sinner. He came for the common and the outcast, people like you and me. And he doesn't leave us as he finds us, but he takes us and equips us to go to other outcasts and bring them the good news too. So do not be afraid, as the angel said. This is good news of great joy for all the people. Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord has come. And he came for you. Will you come to him? Let's pray.